But what I wanted to say is, if you want to know how close you are to God, and if you want to know the state of relationships with your family and people around you, just go through a Christmas season. That will reveal everything to you. Every pressure that has been underneath the surface will come to the surface and explode on you. You know, So for a lot of people, Christmas is an awesome time. And for a lot of people, Christmas is a terrible time. Because we have all of our desires and expectations and it seems like they never get met. And we have a lot of tension sometimes in our families that, I don't know, at Christmas time, it seems to come out. And so as I was thinking about what God would have me to speak on, I wanted to get back to some of the simple basics of what on earth we're doing. Now, you, you all know, right, I hope you know that Jesus was not born on December 25th. Everybody on board with that? Okay. We know he's born in April because it was tax time. So, um, all right, you're a little slow on the uptake here, so that's all right. Of course, that wasn't a very good joke, so it's okay to be slow on that one. But no, seriously, as they, as they look at the uh, descriptions of the shepherds and different things like that, they, their conclusion is that Jesus was most likely born sometime in the spring. But we have chosen as a church throughout history to celebrate the birth of Christ, and so here we are. We celebrate Advent, and, and by the way, I'd love to make a recommendation for you. If you kind of want something to help you as a family meditate on Advent, there's a book by A.W. Tozer called From Heaven, and I don't know if you've med, read much by A.W. Tozer, but he just is a great person on helping you to know God more deeply. 99 cents on the Kindle bookstore. It's, it's really amazing. So it, I've been reading those devotions from heaven by him, and it's just been helping me to kind of slow down and relax and spend some time this Christmas season getting to know God better. And one of the things that struck me as I've been going through this whole concept of Advent is that Advent really isn't a season. The word Advent means birth or entry or introduction. And so when we talk about the advent of spring, we're talking about the fact that, that it's the beginning, it's, it's the birthing, if you will, of spring. And so when we talk about the advent of Jesus Christ, we're talking about that time in history when Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. He came from heaven into this earth, and he was born. And the question that comes up is, what is the message of Advent? And, you know, when you talk to people about what's the meaning of Christmas, you'll get, oh, Christmas is all about love, it's all about family. It's all about, you know, it's all, people give you a million different answers, and there are probably a lot of good ones. But I want to share with you what I believe is the simplest message of Advent, and that's that God wants to be known. God wants to be known by you. He wants to be possessed by you. And I know that's a funny way of saying it. We usually think of us being God's possession. But the funny thing is, God also wants to be your possession. He wants you to say, he's my God. And that being possessed is something that, that God longs for because he is a person with emotions, a will, an intellect, and he longs to be in relationship with other persons 
That's why he created us in his image. Now you say, why do I say this is about being known? Well, let me read to you a couple of scriptures, and we're all going to be in the Gospels the whole time, so it's really easy to kind of move around. But I'd love to just start off by reading Luke 1, 16 and 17, which is a prophecy of John the Baptist, who was the person who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So right away, what's John's ministry? It's to turn people back back to God. People have strayed away from God. John says, I'm going to turn them back to God. He goes on to say in John, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John's job was to go before Jesus and get people ready to welcome Jesus the Messiah into their lives. Now turn over to John 1.14. John 1.14. Such an amazing passage when we slow down and actually think about it. John says, And the Word became flesh. In John 1.1, we learn that the Word, Jesus Christ, was absolute and complete God. He is the creator of everything that exists. Now in John 1.14, John says, Hey, that Word, that eternal God became flesh and lived among us. He lived with us. See, again, why did he do that? Because God wants to be known. He wants to be in relationship with you. And so rather than demanding that we climb up to heaven, which none of us could do, God brought heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And so John says, And we beheld his glory as only of the only Son of the Father, Full of grace and truth. Now move down four more verses to 118. He says, No one has seen God. No one has ever seen God. You know, when I think of that, I go all the way back to Exodus where, where Moses said, Show me your glory. God said, I can't. Because if I did, you'd die. And so remember what God did. He held his hand over the rock that Moses was hiding in, and God went by Moses, and then after he went by, he lifted his hand so God could see his glory as it was going away. This is the the distance between us and God. His glory, Paul says, he lives in unapproachable light. But Jesus, when he became a person, John could say, we beheld his glory. Now, John says that no one has seen God at any time. The only God who is at the Father's side, talking of Jesus now, he has made him known. Now, I want to talk about that verb, made him known. If you have different versions of the Bible, it'll say he has declared him. Uh, Some of your versions will say he has revealed him. Uh, Some will say he has made him known. The reason there are so many different translations for this verb is it is a huge verb that is very difficult to translate into the English language. And what I want you to understand about this, this is so cool. Jesus didn't just make God known. He made God knowable. Okay? He made it possible for us to know God. And 
thing I want to help you understand, knowing a person is, there, there are different levels of that, aren't there? If you met somebody and then the next day I said, hey, do you know that person? Oh, yeah, I met him yesterday. So you would say, I know him even though I've only met him once. Well, biblically, in Genesis, when it says, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived, all right? So that's a different level of knowledge, isn't it? The word know is talking about sexual intimacy, the most intimate experience that two human beings can have together. And to be honest, when God says, I want to be known by you, he wants to, uh, to be known by us in the most intimate way possible. He wants to be involved with every relationship, every experience, every circumstance of our lives. And so when we talk about knowing and being known by God, we're not talking about someone you come and see once a week. We're not talking about somebody you've met. We're not talking about somebody you know something about. We're talking about someone who is the most intimate friend you have in this life. And that's what God's desire for you is. So this is where this is all going. This is what Advent is about. Jesus came to make God knowable. And what I want to do for the rest of this message is talk about how the Advent affected different people. Because what we're going to see is the people in the Advent story already knew God. They were already believers and followers of God, and we see that reflected in how they responded to the circumstances of the Christmas season, quite frankly. And as we go through this, I want to help you understand how knowing God can affect something as simple and as ordinary as how we get through December, how we start off next year, how we live on a day-by-day basis. So let's start with Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be reading from there for a while. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to read to you out of the New Living Translation. By the way, if, if you want to have some fun when you're having your family reading, read out of the New Living. It kind of gives you a different slant on things. It's really cool because it puts it in up-to-date English. Matthew 1.18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, we need to take a break here. That goes very fast, doesn't it? And it oh, okay, she became pregnant. Okay, off we go. Angel comes to Joseph, everything's fine. But in the interim, there was kind of a, a weird time in Joseph's life. Okay, now, now picture this. You're, you're living up in Nazareth. You're, you're the guy. You're excited about getting married to Mary. She's your girl. You're engaged. Everything's going great. And all of a sudden, you're looking at her. Hmm. It looks like a baby bump. And he knows that he did not have relations with her. And I doubt if the Holy Spirit was the father was his second option there. Okay, do you see, see what I mean here? I mean, so, oh, I didn't get her pregnant. Must have been the Holy Spirit. I don't think that was where his mind went. 
Now, you need to understand something. For us, you know, we are in a, a society that has no shame. I mean, do you realize society is an insane that we live in? You know, people are getting pregnant outside of marriage. People are, are living together outside of marriage. People are having sexual relations outside of marriage. And nobody's seen, there's no shame anymore. But back then, shame was a big deal. If, if you had sexual relations outside of marriage, that was a immoral, disgraceful, shameful thing. Joseph was a righteous man. He wanted to please God with all his life. And he looks at Mary, and he's, his only conclusion that he can come to is, she must have violated our covenant relationship. She must have violated her covenant with God and had relations with another man. Now, he had two options at that point. One is, quite frankly, the one that I think I would have chosen is to explode in anger and very publicly denounce her and have a big to-do so that everybody would know it wasn't me. Okay? I would be very concerned about my reputation with everybody. And plus, think of the emotions he's feeling inside. He's angry. He feels betrayed. He feels embarrassed. He feels anxious because he doesn't know how all of this stuff is going to turn out. He's got all of these feelings swirl around, swirling around in him. And you know what Joseph did, which is so great? Nothing. Little tip, you guys. When you're in a crisis, your first reaction is almost always the wrong one. Have you figured that one out yet? What, what you want to do right off the bat is always wrong. But Joseph wasn't that way. He just, In fact, it says that he was considering what to do about this. And, and as a righteous man, he made an amazing decision, even before the angel talk, talks to him. He is willing to take Mary's shame on himself. Now think about this. Rather than having a public divorce where everybody would know he was offended and this was not his baby, He's willing to put her away privately. And he knows all the buzzing in the village is going to be, oh, Joseph uh, couldn't couldn't, uh, contain himself, and so now he's trying to get rid of the problem and all of this kind of stuff. But basically what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to be willing to take her shame on myself. He's a righteous man. Even though he feels like Mary has betrayed him, he still cares for her. He still wants things to work out as best as possibly for her as it can, even though he feels like he can't marry her because he's a righteous man, and that's righteous men don't do that kind of thing. So then we come to verse 20. It's pretty cool. While he was considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Behold, a virgin will conceive with a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is pretty incredible, but I'm not sure this ended all of Joseph's struggles. I want you to think about this. 
Joseph had all of these dreams and expectations as to how life was going to turn out. Mary and I are going to get married. We're going to have a family. We're going to be a normal, godly, Jewish family here in Nazareth, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our life. He had his dream. He had his expectations. He had his desires. And what the angel of the Lord was bringing to him is to say, Joseph, guess what? All that you want comes to an end because I have a new path for you. People of God, there's something I've learned about life. There's not room in your life for your path and God's path. It's either or. And Joseph in an amazing demonstration of obedience. And by the way, it's interesting. We don't hear Joseph saying anything. We just see him obeying. I don't know if you realize this, but throughout all four Gospels, there's never a mention of Joseph saying a word. Not one word for Joseph. He's such a man. I mean, you know, how are you feeling? Fine. You know, so it's a classic man, really, when you think about it. But, but anyway, here Joseph is. He doesn't say anything. He just takes Mary as his wife. And again, he is embracing all of the shame of the village. Everybody's looking at them. They're rolling their eyes at them. They're snickering at them. And, and they are feeling offended by him. Even though right now he's behaving as the righteous, most righteous man in the village. Why did he do this? Joseph did this because he knew God. Joseph did this because God was at the center of his life, and so when he hit this circumstance, how should he respond? Well, how would a man who knows God respond? He would respond with obedience. Now let me just apply this in some kind of silly ways in this kind of season to show you how this actually works through in relationships. One of the reasons that people have such a hard time at Christmas is we all have expectations of what our Christmas should look like, right? We all, we want our kids all together, and we want them there on Christmas Day, and we want them there at the prime time. And then the other family, those dirty rats, they also want them at, at, uh, at their time. You know what I've learned? Frosty the snowman is just not a snowman. It's a woman who has been dissed. And so if you are saying to mom-in-law, hey, we can't come over, and all of a sudden, ooh, you were in bad shape. Part, part of what makes... Christmas great is when you destroy your expectations. You destroy your rights. You, you give those things up. And this is not just at Christmas. This is how God wants us to live. And you begin to be a servant to the needs and desires of those around you. You know, we had our Thanksgiving on November 11th. Uh, why? Because kids were going all over the place. And we had a fabulous time. It just wasn't on, quote-unquote, the official Thanksgiving day. Our Christmas will be December 23rd. Who says that you have to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day? This is, you see, when you start taking some of these expectations off and some of these demands off, all of a sudden, Christmas becomes a lot easier a lot more stress-free, and but it's when we want to hold on to our rights. It's when we want to hold on to our own dreams. And Joseph, in order to be the man of God that God called him to be, he had to give up all of his dreams 
He had to give up his own path. And he had to follow the path that God had for him. So principle number one, what does the Advent teach us? What will happen when we come to know God? Well, we're going to be willing to give up our rights. We're going to be willing to give up our dreams and follow the path that God has for us. Now let's look at the wise men. Matthew chapter 2. These guys were amazing. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. By the way, uh, Herod was not a Jewish king. He was an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau. So he had no right to be reigning over the people of Israel, and that's one of the reasons they hated him so much. The other, he was incredibly wicked and violent. But here he is ruling. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands in, arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, if you think there were three guys riding on a camel coming into Jerusalem, get that out of your mind completely. This caravan was hundreds of people coming. Uh, we have no idea how many wise men there were. There were... I, almost assuredly far more than three. Because this was a whole group of scholars who had been studying, and personally, I believe the great influence of their life was the prophet Daniel. Because the Magi, they were the guys who came from Medo-Persia, which was the empire where Daniel ministered in the last days of his life. When you look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Daniel actually gives a timetable by which you can predict when Messiah would come. Now, the time that he pinpoints is actually the death of Messiah, but they could figure this out and realize, hey, we need to start looking for signs that Messiah is coming. We don't know how they picked up and tied together the idea of Messiah coming with a star, but they did. So these guys are studying astronomy. They're not astrologers. They're not like witch people trying to tell the future. They're astronomers. And they see this star, which I believe is not a star that can be explained by any natural means. It is a supernatural star that God put in the heavens specifically for this purpose. Why do I believe that? Because the star that guided them to Bethlehem went in the direction in the sky that stars never go. Stars move one way across the sky. This star moved exactly opposite of that direction. So I believe this star may have actually been kind of like the Shekinah glory of God guided the children of Israel in the Old Testament. I believe this star was the glory of God that guided these wise men to where Jesus was born. So here we have these guys. They see this star. Now understand, these men are all incredibly rich. They've got their own jobs. They've got their own families. They've got their own lives. And they see this star that signals that this coming king is going to be born. They give up everything. They stop everything in their lives, and they start on a brand new journey to find this Messiah. Why do they want to find him? They want to worship him. So these guys know that this newborn king is not an ordinary person. They are coming specifically because they say, our response to the coming of God into this world is we need to go and see him and worship him. Now, let's shift gears a minute. You're not the wise men. You're Herod and the Jewish scholars. And so this huge 
lavish caravan comes riding into town. And these guys that you've never met before, they come into your presence, they're, they're obviously men of power and wealth, and they say, hey, we've heard your king has been born, we've come to worship him. Now Herod, I can understand him not being interested in meeting the Messiah. Okay? He is... By the way, have you noticed that people who are evil grow more evil as time goes on? Okay? And ultimately people hit a certain level of evil where they actually go utterly and completely insane. You know, Adolf Hitler at the end of his life was absolutely nuts. And it was good for us because he made really stupid decisions about the war. I don't know if you've ever followed World War II, but it, he was absolutely insane at the end of the war. And that's what, that's what evil people do. They keep getting more and more evil, and finally they just go nuts. And Herod, by this time, he was only three years away from his death, he was absolutely crazy. He was killing his own family members. He was just doing nutty, nutty things. And so I kind of put him off on his own little shelf. He's crazy, and I don't understand. I don't have any heartburn with how he responded. But the Jewish scholars, Herod comes to them, and he says, hey, uh, these guys want to worship the Messiah. Do you guys know where he's going to be born? And they go, that's easy. Micah 5.2, written five years before Jesus was born, tells us exactly where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem because it's the city of David. Now, Bethlehem is 4.5 miles away from Jerusalem. And this huge caravan has ridden a minimum of three months over hundreds of miles to come and see this Messiah. Don't you think... One of these Jewish guys might have thought, hmm, maybe I should go check this out. I mean, we've been waiting for the Messiah for 2,000 years. Maybe we should go look at this. Not one went. Why? Because even though they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands, they didn't know God. They didn't know God. You guys, there are thousands of people sitting in churches all across America who don't know God. You understand that, right? And Because they didn't know God, they had no room for the Messiah. They had no room for God's path in their lives. And so when it came to the idea, should I take one day and do a fairly easy walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see if the Messiah we've been waiting for for thousands of years has actually come? Their answer was, nah. I've got a bridge game tonight. We're going out to dinner. We're going to have a little uh, celebration. And we see that, and we compare it with the hearts of the wise men. And we begin to see another difference in the way that people who know God respond to people who don't know God. When I was pastoring, it was interesting. There were hundreds of books of how we can make it easier for people to come to church. Uh, Robert Schuller, remember, did the drive-in church. You know, his theme was "Come as you are, but stay in the car." And so, you know, so he 
He had his way. How can, how can we make it easier for people to come to church? You know what? That's not the problem. You could go meet in a person's front yard. Okay, we're, we're going to bring church to you, and it wouldn't make any difference because if they don't have any room, if they're too filled with their own path, they're not going to have any room for Messiah in their lives. And that's why the greatest thing that we can do for people is to pray for them and then to demonstrate our li- with our lives what it actually looks like when Messiah is in your life. So when in the wise men, we see guys who, even though Daniel lived probably about 500 years before they were born, the message of Daniel had been passed down for generations, and I believe that those wise men knew God. Why do I believe they knew God? Because they showed it with their response to this new revelation. They came and worshipped the Son of God. There's one more person I want to look at, and that's uh, Mary. Mary is in uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Sometimes in our response to the Catholic Church, we underplay Mary. And I think that's as wrong as elevating her to like godlike status or something like that. Mary was an extraordinary woman. And the prophecy was that all of the nation, everybody's going to call her blessed. This is an amazing woman. Now listen to this story here. In the sixth month of Israel, Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's Zachariah's wife, John the Baptist, was getting ready to be born. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a virgin named Mary. Now we're seeing the flip side of this. She was engaged to, a, to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and he said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. Let's stop right there. The angel saying to Mary, hey, you have found favor with God. Mary's going, wow, this is great. You're going to get pregnant. And you remember how the conversation goes. Mary says, whoa, 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 time out. Time out. I'm a virgin. I haven't had sex with anyone, and I'm not planning on having sex with anyone until I get married. So what are we talking about? The angel says, look, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you so that the one who is born will be called the Son of God. Let me ask you a question. Could Mary have said no? What do you think? Yes or no? Could Mary have said no? I think she could have. It would have ruined the story. But she could have said no. She could have said, look, Gabe, I've got my own life. I've got a guy who likes me. If I turn up pregnant... He's going to ditch me for sure. You know, I want, people are going to think I'm a terrible person. They're going to think I'm, I'm a horrible person. Look, no, find somebody else. Mary didn't do that. Why? Because she knew God. See, you can see from people's reaction whether they know God or not. And Mary knew God, and so she said... Behold, Gabriel, 
I am the bond slave of the Lord. I am the bond servant of the Lord. May it be done exactly as you have said. Mary knew that she was opening herself up to a life of difficulty. And I got to tell you, Mary had a very difficult life. They, moved, they had to move to Bethlehem. They stayed in Bethlehem for a few years. Then they had to move to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill the baby. Then they had to move back to Nazareth because they still couldn't live in Bethlehem anymore because even the people who followed Herod were trying to kill the Messiah. Mary had a difficult life. And you guys, when you're on God's path, I want you to understand something. Your life will probably be more difficult than if you were on your own path. Just like a fish, is it easier for a fish to go downstream with the current or upstream? When you're on your own path, you're just flowing with the world, just cruising down the stream. The only problem is the end of that stream is destruction. And we're the fish who have turned around and decided, no, we want to swim upstream towards the kingdom of God. And it's a tougher road it's a better road. It's a better road. And so for Mary, knowing God wasn't so much as giving up her expectations as giving up her body. Giving up her whole life for God to use her as he saw fit. You know it would be fun if we could have a little portal right here to heaven. So we had Mary and Joseph and the wise men, all of these guys lined up. And so we talked first of all to Joseph. Hey, was it worth it? And of course, he doesn't say anything. But uh, no, he, he would talk to us. But, you know, talk to Mary. Hey, Mary, you, you opened yourself up to a difficult life. Was it worth it? And her response would be utter shock that we would even ask such a stupid question. I was the vessel through which the Son of God came into the world and brought salvation to everyone. Are you kidding me? Was it worth it? It was the greatest decision I ever made. Joseph, was it worth it to have this weird life? Of course it was. Wise men, are you glad that you left your homes and came to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? See, they, would, they wouldn't even understand the question. It would seem so stupid to them. And here's what I want to say to you right now. The question is, do you know God? And by that, I don't mean have you met him? Uh, do you see him once a week at church? I mean, do you know him so intimately that he is in control of every relationship, every circumstance, every dream, every goal, every thought? Because if you know him to that extent, it's going to change the way you deal with people. It's going to change the way you dream. It's going to change the way you move every day of your life. That is the message of the Advent season.
know God, follow Him, and love Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because there is no greater love. Now we want to take time and celebrate communion. And I'm going to invite the band up. They're going to come up and lead us in a time of worship. As we do so, I, I want to invite you to think of a couple of things. First of all, I know for a fact that there are people in this room who don't know God. Why do I know that? It's just every church in America has people who have been attending who know God and people who have been attending who they come to church because their families come to church or because that's what kind of what they grew up doing. If you're here today and you don't know God, I want to invite you to make the choice to allow God to come into the center of your life right now. It is so easy, it is deceptively difficult. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but will have everlasting life. You may say, man, I've got some junk in my life that God could never accept. God never demands that you clean yourself up because we can't. What he does is he says, come just like you are. Let me wash you of your sins and let me put my spirit within you and let me start the journey of helping you follow me. I would love to encourage you as we're going to take communion the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. The cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ. As you eat those physical elements, just say to Jesus right then, I take you into my life as my Lord and my Savior. And you begin a new journey with me right now. If you're here today and you do know God, my single question for you is, over the last people, week if people looked at your life would they come to the conclusion ah they know God because when you know God he's going to change the way you live he's going to change the way you love he's going to change the way you deal with people strangers and visitors alike so let me pray let us have, use this time of communion as a time of reflection and a time of really drawing close to Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you might work in our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us to be people who know you from the inside out. Help us to be people who love you and love others because you have loved us. We ask these things, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.